Pilate. I think he, he, he remembers this law that would allow at Passover for the releasing of a prisoner under Jewish law. And I think he's quite proud of himself because I think he, he's thinking, actually, I can get Jesus off the hook here. I can get Jesus right off the hook. And actually, I'm not going to be responsible. It was an act, of course, that remembered the deliverance of the people from Egypt, uh, from slavery. And this is his washing of the hands moment. Going to give them a choice so I don't have to make it. Jesus or Barabbas? Barabbas is a robber. The other, the other gospels, as they do, go into more detail. They show his crimes to be extensive. He is a robber. He is a murderer. In the course of all that, there is rebellion against Rome. This guy is basically a terrorist. The scribes and the chief priests had nothing but contempt for terrorists, especially those from amongst their own people. Much like there was no love lost between the religious leaders and Pilate, there is no sort of affiliation with Barabbas from the religious leaders. This is not a man that's messed up a couple of times that they think, yeah, okay, it would be nice to see him home. There is no affiliation. This man is hated for what he has done. Yet they are presented, of course, with this choice. Who shall we free? The Lord Jesus or Barabbas? If this was a children's talk, I'd probably ask you a series of ridiculously obvious questions. Would you prefer a moldy banana or a wonderful plate of chicken nuggets? Would you rather play the latest Xbox game or stay and watch paint dry? Would you rather go to Disneyland or school? You know, I'd, I'd ask you those sorts of questions because that's the sort of question that's being asked here. It is a ludicrous question. Would you rather crucify a man who is utterly innocent in any form of political way yet makes outlandish uh, spiritual claims in Jesus? Or would you rather release this man who is a genuine threat to society? And I think Pilate assumes this is a silly question. I think he assumes that the people are obviously only going to make one choice. There's no way this group of people are going to crucify Jesus over Barabbas. And it is inconceivable, isn't it, that this crowd would choose Barabbas. And again, through these actions, through the actions of this crowd, we see God's sovereign plan continue to unfold before us. So we move. Uh, I'm just going to kind of break this down verse by verse as we go. Um, but we open here in, in chapter 19 with uh, Pilate taking Jesus and flogging him. There's three types of floggings in, in the Roman justice system. You have the one that is kind of a, a warning. You know, don't do this again. This is painful, but it's not debilitating. It's sort of a, yeah, it's a deterrent for people. The second, more serious, and the third, of course, the most serious. This is where we see the leather belt with pieces of metal through it that would expose organs, that would expose bone, all sorts. Horrific. I, don't, I think this is the first kind because we see in, in, in later in the other Gospels uh, another flogging of Jesus and I think that's more the third kind because the third kind of, of whipping is, is made so that the crucifixion is quicker. That somebody is so debilitated already that their death comes quicker. So Jesus is flogged, humiliated by this crowd, by Pilate's instruction and then we find 
these words, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, hail king of the Jews and struck him with their hands. You can just stick the picture up if you want, you and for I thought. Um, I don't know how many artists over the centuries have, have drawn this. I don't really want to use any of them because I don't like them as images. And I think it's, we, we see, you can visualize them, can't you? This picture of this drained face covered in blood with this crown of thorns across his head meant to be the Lord Jesus. These thorns woven together, thorns long driven down onto his head, into his temples, horrific to think of all of this for the sport of the soldiers. And mocking him, they took this robe of purple, the color of royalty. We won't go into that symbolism just now, but the color of royalty, purple, thrown across his back. And we come to this king who is now like the court jester. He has gone from this man, the son of God, to this man I imagine hunched over from the flogging, standing with this crown of thorns upon his head, with this robe over his shoulders. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Just going to come and tell you again, I can't find it. I can't find what you want me to do to crucify him. I don't see it. I don't see the reason for it. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe and Pilate said to them, behold the man. This phrase is loaded with, it has been through all the church history, loaded with such theological significance. We obviously don't know inside Pilate's mind. We don't know what he means by this in this moment. But he's saying, look at him. Look at this guy. Look at this man in front of you. Is this your king? But also, isn't this enough? Isn't this enough to see this mocked, beaten, bloodied man standing next to me? How is this man any sort of threat? But it's amazing, isn't it, that the one that stands there as a fool, as a laughing stock right in front of them, is the perfect man. It's mind-blowing, isn't it? That in that moment of complete vulnerability, the one that stands there is the perfect man. And whatever intent Pilate had in those words, it had no impact on this crowd. They are still baying for blood verse 6 when the chief priests and the officers saw him they cried out crucify him crucify him the crowd did as Pilate asked they beheld this man they looked at him much like Jesus called Pilate to to look at him much like he said to Pilate have you considered who I am or do you just listen to the opinions of others here they have beheld but this humiliation did nothing for them. Nothing's changed. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate is beside himself. I think he's out of ideas. He does not want to crucify Jesus. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. I can't do it. I can't crucify a man I can't find guilt with. But he knew fine well they wouldn't take Jesus. They wouldn't kill him. They've said that already. He couldn't hand him over to them. But I think he's just so frustrated at this point. 
so frustrated that he almost couldn't stop this hatred to Jesus. Here we have this man who is innocent before him, yet he has this crowd just so desperate for his death. Pilate tries to stand up to this crowd and he fails. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. You see, when they first came to when they first brought this to Pilate, they came with this kind of political charge. Do you know, that th- this man's going to be a problem. This man's, and we've seen their ambiguity, haven't we? That they, that they didn't really declare what their charge was because they didn't really have a case against him. But their original claim was that, that this guy is, is a threat. He is a problem. But now we see that the issue for them isn't the politics of Jesus, but it is the identity of Jesus. It wasn't what he did that made them hate him, but it was who he said he was that made them hate them. They knew that if they brought this real theological issue before the Romans, they would not have got anywhere. So it kind of changes here. Pilate, we want you to kill him, and if you don't want to kill him, can you do it on our behalf? Because we can't do it. This man is making himself equal to God, that is, bang out of order. This man cannot be allowed to live. We want you to do this for us. And the response in verse 8, Pilate heard this statement. He was even more afraid. I think the basis of this fear is because this crowd is not going to let up. I think it is that realization that there's nothing now he can do. But I also wonder if there's an element to this fear where Pilate just thinks, what actually if he is? What if this man actually is who he says he is? Maybe not. Maybe we'll we'll never know the, the meaning of that. But his fear is from this crowd. But I wonder, is it because he actually for himself begins to ask the question, who is this man. He continues, verse 9, he entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave no answers. An interesting question, where are you from? I think he's trying to dig, he's, you know, is, is this Jesus actually a man? Is he actually who he says he is? Jesus remains silent, he said everything he needs to say. Pilate's frustration grows. Will you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you or to crucify you? Do you understand who I am, Jesus? You stand here silent. Do you understand who I am? You know, he threatens him, but at the same time also offers him assistance. I can kill you or I can release you. Give me something so that I can help you here. And now Jesus would respond. You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This narrative unravels for us like a play, doesn't it? We see these kind of key characters coming in and out. We see Jesus at the center. We see Pilate. We see Caiaphas. We see this group of religious leaders. And we have Pilate. Pilate, ordained by God to be in this 
situation. He had authority, real authority, earthly authority. But it was delegated authority. God had placed Jesus at Pilate's mercy so that his will might be done. Jesus tells him, every bit of authority you have has come from my Father. Every, everything you have has been given to you from above. R.C. Sproul says this, You're like clay in my Father's hands. It has been ordained from the foundations of the world that you would do what you were about to do. Still, you're doing it of your own free will because you have a wicked heart and you are a slave to public opinion. So go ahead, do what you have to do because you're doing what the Father has ordained for you to do. That's his interpretation of what, what, what Jesus is, is saying to Pilate here. God works in and through evil actions of sinful hearts to accomplish his purposes doesn't, of course, in any way justify those acts. It doesn't make those actions right before God in any way, but God can work through them. Pilate's intentions are evil. The religious leaders' intentions are evil, but in condemning Jesus, they did the greatest service to God's people that would ever be known. Think of another example of Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. God used their evil. Egypt prepared for a famine. Preparations that ultimately saved his brothers. And Joseph says to them, Genesis 50 verse 20, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What does Jesus mean when he told Pilate, the one who delivered me to you has the greatest sin? I don't really know. Is he talking about Caiaphas, Annas, Judas, the leaders? All of them have these starring roles, don't they? and his deliverance to Pilate. I think the assumption here is that not all sin is equal. There is degrees of sinfulness. And the, the, the betrayal of God's people for the blood of their own Messiah at the hands of the Gentiles was of the greatest kind of sin. The lack of justice from Pilate was also sin, but to a lesser extent than the betrayal of his own people. The last, last little section of this. We'll just read 12 to 16. In fact, no, I won't. I'll come back to that. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Something changes. Pilate now vocalizes, I want to set Jesus free. And presumably he mentions this to the crowd. You would be no friend of Caesar if you did this. Following this, in the next few decades, the friend of Caesar became a title. Interestingly, a well-established in, in the Roman Empire became a title. And it was given as a certain level of status to somebody who had done things that were worthy of position within the kingdom. If you don't give us what we want, you will lose everything, Pilate. You will no longer be a friend. You will no longer have this status. And remember, we looked this morning, this guy doesn't have the best of reputations in Jerusalem. The Jews don't particularly like him. And I think with the number of people gathered there in Jerusalem for Passover, there was enough to bring social disorder if they so desired. 
So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered them over to be crucified. Behold your king. The words that stick, of course, are those words of John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Joyfully proclaimed by John. And here Pilate would cry, Behold your king. Look at your king. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. I can think of a few words that sum up the rejection of the old covenant people of the Lord Jesus. In those words, we have no king but Caesar, because in those words, they honor nobody. They honor not Christ. They honor not who they believe to be their God, this great nation, a theocracy under God. God is their king. But that appears forgotten. God is their king, but even that is denied. And as a result, Pilate turns over, Pilate turns Jesus over to be crucified. So, how do we apply this? Firstly, firstly we just read it and we just, we just reflect on the fact that Jesus did this for me and for you. I'm not sure there's much more application needed from this passage than that. That just this savior, our savior walked like this. And he took this beating and he took the humiliation and he did it all for you. But also I guess there are, behold your, behold your king. What's your verdict? Plenty of opportunities for the starring roles of this narrative in the last couple of weeks to repent and turn back. What's your judgment? Is he your king? Does your life reflect that he is your king? Our heart's desires is to rule ourselves. We want our desires, what we want to be king. We want to be in charge of our own life. Do we acknowledge that Jesus is king? Do you know as Liz read for us this morning? And I don't know if it's because we've been in John for so long, but I just, for the first, one of the first times I sat there and I listened And I couldn't help but think, I can't believe you're doing that to my Jesus. I can't believe that the man that stands in front of you, you would do this to. It is a beautiful reassurance to know of the sovereign hand of God throughout this, but it doesn't take away from the pain of it. It doesn't lighten the pain of the rejection of our Savior by those who should have been some of his closest friends, does it? Friends, may we never, never reject would we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're just going to sit in silence for a couple of minutes. We're going to reflect. Kenny's going to pray. I'll ask our two deacons forward and we're going to gather around the table. But please just, if you want to read some of this passage to yourself, please do. But take a moment to reflect.